Hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to see all of you today as we come together to worship and now kind of delve into God's Word just a little bit in just a second. You know, whenever I meet someone, I always assume a few things about them. It doesn't matter what country they're from, their culture, their ethnicity, their language, their age, their gender. There are a few things that we all share as human beings, that things we hold in common that become a starting point in starting a conversation or a relationship. And the first is that everyone has the need to love and to be loved. This is our most basic human need, to love and to be loved, because every human being carries sort of imprinted on their heart this need to be loved. There's often, unfortunately, some pain associated with that desire, some disappointment, frustration. I'm not saying every person is lovable. I'm not saying that they're even able to express love very well. Some people are just mean and cruel and heartless. But if you're able to peel back the layers far enough, eventually you'll discover a person kind of inside who is searching for love or acceptance or connection. Second, every person wants to have a sense of value wants to know that their lives are worth something, that they're good at something, that they do something that gives them a sense of accomplishment in life. Could be from their work or from a hobby or from their relationships, but some sense of personal value that their life maybe means something to someone. And because of that, they want to be treated with respect, that others see you as having value, and so they treat you that way. To be disrespected, to be devalued, to be dismissed, to be ignored, that, that's something that really wounds the human heart. And third, and this sort of encompasses the first two, every person is on a spiritual journey. And I don't necessarily mean a Christian spiritual journey, but a spiritual journey to discover sort of one's place in the universe. To be loved, to have a sense of value, those are both part of this larger search. You could call it a search for meaning. To answer the question, well, why do I exist? What, what am I here for? That's a spiritual question. If you've never read Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, I would highly recommend it. It was written, published in 1946. Frankl wrote about his experiences as a Jewish prisoner in the Nazi concentration camps during World War II. And Frankl observed that only the people who had a sense of why, a why to keep on living, only those folks had the ability to withstand the horrors of those horrendous death camps. The why, why am I here? That's a spiritual journey. For the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at that universal spiritual truth or search so that we can connect with people about our own journey with Christ. In our day, this idea of a spiritual journey has been popularized by the phrase, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Anybody heard that phrase before? I'm spiritual, but not religious. Maybe you've said it about yourself. I don't think it's a bad phrase, not automatically. I think there's a lot of good that can come out of that phrase if rightly kind of dissected. But what that phrase does is it reflects a change in attitude, a shift in our thinking about this larger spiritual journey. You see, it used to be that being religious and being spiritual were basically the same thing. They overlapped. They were sort of synonymous. It used to be that your private spiritual life, it would overlap with some form of institutional religion. So if you were Jewish, you went to temple. If you were Roman Catholic, you went to mass. If you're Protestant Christian, you went to church. If Hindu or Muslim or Buddhist, you would participate in the rituals and the traditions of that faith and so on. The personal and the public went together. Your private feelings of spirituality, they were coupled together with some institutional public expression of that faith. 
But in our day, all that has changed. When asked about their religious preference, the fastest growing portion of the population in America are the religious nuns. And I don't mean N-U-N-S. I mean N-O-N-E-S, nuns. People are opting out of what they see as institutional religion. In fact, the Wall Street Journal just did a feature article on it just this past week. I won't bore you with all those statistics. You can kind of Google all that stuff for yourself. But this growing group sort of includes three smaller subgroups. The first is those who just, they don't really have any particular religious history. They're not connected with any religion at all, but they just have a vague sense of spirituality. Then there are those who say the faith that they were raised in just doesn't play an important life uh, part in their life anymore. And so it just doesn't mean that much. And then finally, the third are folks who have a sense of faith, but they no longer have a strong tie to any particular religious organization. So in other words, a person who might have been raised Christian, they still like Jesus, they don't like the church. Somehow the church experience has left them with a sour taste in their mouths. So they, even though they might be open, even interested in Jesus or spiritual things, they no longer look to the church to scratch that itch. And then in many cases, that spiritual interest, it just gets buried under the stuff of life. You know, it just gets buried, that impulse to, to explore faith, it just gets suppressed under, you know, just getting through every day. The folks who have dropped out of church usually do so for two, one of two reasons. First, they just no longer the church, think of the church or what the church is doing. It's no longer relevant to their life. It's not answering their questions. It's not addressing their struggles. So for a host of reasons, the, the church has just lost any meaning for them. They just stop, stop going. They're not mad. They're not angry. They just don't see the value. And so they just kind of fade away. The second, those are the people who are mad. They're angry about something connected with the institutional church. And for many in our part of the country particularly, they're mad about something serious, the pervasive sexual abuse by the Roman Catholic priests. And what they think is even worse, the cover-up by the church hierarchy, who seem to be more interested in protecting the priests than in protecting their parishes. There are a lot of people who live around us in our neighborhoods Still don't see themselves as Catholic, but they are done with the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, you probably know people like that. That's a serious and very significant reason to reject religion while still feeling spiritual. Others might reject the church for perhaps less serious reasons. A pastor friend of mine told me this story this past week. He was new to a church, and so the elders gave him a list of all the people who had left the church under the previous pastor. You know, sometimes church folks uh, treat the coming and going of pastors like a beauty contest. You know, who's, got, who's the better preacher, who has the warmer personality, who does better in the swimsuit competition, all that kind of stuff. And people will shift churches for that reason because they're not really committed to the mission of the church. Well, the elders of this church thought a new face might bring some of those people back. And so off the pastor goes to visit all these folks who had dropped out of the church. One woman he visited quickly said she was never going back. It was the most unfriendly church she'd ever experienced. And so the pastor had asked, well, was there something that happened that made you feel that way? Turns out she had brought a casserole to a potluck dinner, a culinary masterpiece that she had slaved over uh, and prepared with great care, and nobody ate any of it, not even one scoop. Nobody even bothered to like swirl it around a little bit like they pretended to eat from it. And so first of all, she was so embarrassed to see her little culinary delight sitting there untouched. And then she got angry that nobody bothered to even make the effort to try her casserole. So she left the church. 
So she still loved Jesus, sort of, but no way was she ever going back to that church. Well, folks, welcome to real church life, okay? <laughs> People get mad at the church for all kinds of reasons because the church is not perfect. You had an idea, no one took it seriously, maybe that's your casserole. You volunteered, no one thanked you, no one showed you appreciation, maybe that's your casserole. Your child got yelled at for running amok up and down the hallways, that's your casserole. We don't treat each other perfectly. So folks, do get their noses bent out of shape, and then out they go. I'm spiritual, but not religious. Today, many people maintain a positive feel in their lives towards spirituality, but it's private. It's something not shared. It's not practiced in public. It's personal, and it's sort of self-defined, meaning that, that they kind of create a belief system that works for their lifestyle. And in that sense, they kind of create a God in their own image, a God that fits them. Often spiritual feelings can be attached to nature. People feel moved by a sunset or the grandeur of the mountains, the beauty of the ocean. It gives them a sense of what's called the numinous or the, or the transcendent, something that inspires a sense of awe or wonder. But the research is very clear. The vast majority of people here in the United States, they believe that there is a something something up there, something that is beyond us, something bigger than us, something that at least put the universe together or at least got it started. Folks may not believe much more beyond that, but most people have this vague understanding that we are not alone in the universe. And get this, the research shows very clearly 80% of Americans say they pray to that something, particularly when they're in a crisis. 80% of the people around you are praying I mean, that's a really high percentage of the population. I mean, think about it for a second. Where you work or your neighborhood, your school, already 80% of those people are praying. They are open to the idea of prayer. They're already open to spiritual things. And that's why if you're interested in talking with people about spiritual things, generally it's pretty easy to find some basic common ground from which to begin. People already believe something is out there, and so they're open. And that's really the first fork in the road of the spiritual journey. Is there something or is there nothing? Is there something out there, not necessarily the God of the Bible, but is there something out there that at least got the universe started? Some first cause, some uncreated creator, something that wound up the Big Bang and then let it boom, okay? Some cosmic energy, divine power. That's the first fork in the road. Is there something or nothing? Because it's really hard to find a true atheist these days, let me tell you. I mean, I mean a real stone-cold atheist who absolutely believes there's nothing out there in the universe, no higher power, no energy, no nothing. Not even a blip on the spiritual radar screen. Just cold, dark, mechanical space. Most people who call themselves atheists, they're really agnostics in disguise. Because being a, an agnostic means you're just not sure. You're not convinced. You don't really want to make a choice between all the religious options. Kind of hedge your bets. Keep your options open. Play it safe. And so you basically decide not to believe anything too specific. But that is not the same thing as being a stone-cold atheist. A stone-cold atheist is really hard to find. I don't know how many of you watched the uh, debate, debate last week between the 12 folks vying for the Democrat Party nominee for president. According to Google Trends, the highest search during the debate was not about any of the debaters. 
It was about an ad that ran during the middle of the debate that featured Ron Reagan, the son of former President Ronald Reagan, in which he's promoting his, his atheist organization. And I'm quoting from the commercial. He says, Hi, I'm Ron Reagan. I'm an unabashed atheist, and I'm alarmed by the intrusion of religion into our secular government. Please support the XYZ organization. And then it finishes with this tagline, Ron Reagan, lifelong atheist, not afraid of burning in hell. So he's one who does present himself as this stone-cold atheist who thinks there's just nothing out there. And what I don't understand, if that's true for you, if you're truly a stone-cold atheist, why even care about religion in secular government? Why, none of it is going to matter anyway. It's just cold, dark space. Why bother? You know, the main apostle of true atheism today is an English biologist named Richard Dawkins. He's sort of the self-appointed spokesman for modern atheists. And here's what he believes in a nutshell. And again, I quote, Humans have always wondered about the meaning of life. Life has no higher purpose than to perpetuate the survival of DNA. Life has no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Wow. No design, no purpose, no good, no evil, just power. Just survival of the fittest. Love is a sophisticated biological instinct for species propagation. The idea that there's no meaning in life not only is just so hopeless, but it also has led to the greatest evils of humankind. Darwin's evolutionary approach to humanity is what led to all the genocides of the 20th century of Stalin and the Soviet Union and Mao and China, Pol Pot and Cambodia. That blind, pitiless indifference is what led to the rise of the great evils of fascism and Nazism. If the universe is just cold, dark space, then friends, it is kill or be killed. That is the only thing that matters. There is no right or wrong. There's no moral or ethical reason to do or not do anything. The only thing that matters is survival. There's only blind, pitiless indifference. If you want to read a good book to rebuke that or to rebut that kind of thinking, uh, I'd recommend Finding Darwin's God by cell biologist Kenneth Miller. He provides a pretty good rebuttal for Richard Dawkins. Now, obviously the Bible points us in a different direction, right? The Bible is founded on this most basic belief that there is a something out there, a something that got it all started. Think of the very first words of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The word Genesis means the beginning. So the book is very aptly named because here's the first sentence in the Hebrew Scriptures. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, there is a something. After one verse, what do we know about the something? The something is creative. It conceives. It brings into existence. It generates. It brings matter and energy together into form and substance. It has a will. It has intention. It has power. It is different from its creation, but also involved in its creation. We actually can learn a great deal about this something from this one sentence. This something creates. So it's no wonder that one of the Gospels that tells the story of Jesus begins by echoing these very words, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. 
It's not an exact quote of Genesis 1-1, but it's close enough that you know John wants the reader to make a connection with the opening verse of the Hebrew Scriptures. You know, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're often grouped together and called synoptic Gospels. That means to see together. The synoptic Gospels use a lot of the same material. They look at Jesus' life basically through the same lens. But John's Gospel is autopic. It means it looks alone. It looks as Jesus very uniquely has a lot of material not included in the other Gospels because none of the Gospels was intended to be the complete biography of Jesus. In fact, John concludes his story and the life of Jesus this way, John 21. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written, John 21, 25. So the Gospel writers... They intentionally chose the stories that they wanted to tell. They ordered them. They shaped them. They edited them, all guided by the Holy Spirit to tell us the story of Jesus. What John writes is not a chronological life of Jesus. You get that out of the Gospel of Luke. If you want just the facts, bing, bang, boom, then read the Gospel of Mark. If you're looking for the teaching ministry of Jesus, then read through the Gospel of Matthew. What John gives us is a theological telling of the gospel story. doesn't use any of Jesus' parables. There are no ethical or kingdom sections like the Sermon on the Mount. Instead, John builds his gospel around seven different miracles, five of which are not recorded anywhere else in the Bible. John's great emphasis is to let people know the person of Jesus. gives us the opportunity to look inside Jesus' thoughts and emotions, his interior life, and that's why so often this is a well-beloved gospel by so many people. So John, he just jumps right into the deep end of the pool. Doesn't wait around in the shallow water of magi and angels and shepherds and mangers and all that kind of stuff. He jumps in with both feet to the cosmic, the something that got it all started. There's no more important theological statement in the entire Bible than this one. In the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And starting his gospel this way, John is blending two very strong traditions from his own day. The Hebrew legacy of the Old Testament and the philosophy of the ancient Greeks that was very popular during his own time. The ancient Greeks, I mean, they loved to debate all this stuff about creation and God and what kind of universe we live in. They loved the, all these different ideas about this something that got it all started. And they had a word to describe that, and the word was the word, logos. That word was first used by a guy named Heraclitus who lived in uh, about the 6th century B.C. For Heraclitus and the philosophers that followed him, this word was, was the way of explaining how did the whole universe stay together and not just blow apart. The word was this abstract force that kind of provided unity to all things. It's sort of like, like the glue that would hold together a model airplane. That's the way to think about the word from Heraclitus. This overarching power was even bigger than the power of their little gods like Apollos and Ares and all the rest. The word was bigger than all of that. It was this omnipresent but impersonal force that just kind of pulsated through the universe uh, more akin to what Buddhism or Hinduism or actually what Star Wars would teach today. On the Jewish side, there was Philo of Ag Alexandria. He was a devout Jew, lived a generation before Jesus. And for Philo, the world, the known world was really made up of the ideas or the thoughts of God. 
if God stopped thinking about us, he said our universe would just simply disappear in a puff of smoke. The logos or the word was God's way of keeping the world going. It was God's thoughts. For Philo, the world was sort of this middle point between this transcendent God and this created order. But John takes this word logos in a completely different direction. He kind of remixes Heraclitus and Philo with a creation story. In the beginning, God said. God spoke into creation. That's how the Jewish scriptures began. And John echoes that by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. For, God, for, for John, this logos is exactly identical with the something that God had all started. They're of one essence. It's not an emanation from the something. It's not a representative of the something. It's not the thoughts of the something. The Logos is the very God of all creation made personal and now visible in Jesus Christ. A few sentences later, John says, Jesus is the Word made flesh. Do you understand how completely radical this idea was in this ancient world? This perfect expression of God, the Logos, the Creator, the something has actually entered its own creation and become human in Jesus. Jesus is the very Word of God, not mystical like the Greeks, not impersonal like Philo. In fact, the exact opposite, extremely personal to the point of flesh and blood, able to be known and touched and experienced. So John places Jesus at the beginning and the center of all things. He is the something that is at the center of the spiritual journey. Now, I know this has been kind of philosophical this morning. We're going to pick up here again next week because we're going to talk about the second fork in the road. The first fork is, is there something or nothing? The second fork in the road in the spiritual journey is this something personal or impersonal. But there's one thing I just want you to walk away with this morning. I want you to remember that every person you rub elbows with this week is on a spiritual journey. In your office, in your school, in your neighborhood, in every store, on every train, they are all on a spiritual journey, and you can count on the fact that 80% of them pray. They've prayed to this something. They already believe there is a higher power. Most of them have prayed to this higher power. And most of them would be okay if you could ask them in a sensitive way, tell me about this higher power that you believe in. How did you come to your beliefs? What does it mean for you to pray? Just ask them about why they believe what they believe about their higher power. And then, just listen. Just listen. No arguing, no interrupting, no trying to prove a point, no trying to get your two cents in. Just listen. The best spiritual conversations happen when you stop talking and you just really start to listen because chances are, if you listen, they're going to return the favor. And they're going to ask you something about the higher power that you believe in. And then together, you can begin a spiritual journey. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for just for the fact that we do live in a world where people are open to spiritual things, just not necessarily church things. And so, Lord, how we overcome those barriers, how we begin to speak authentically and, and begin to love people authentically and begin to just allow your spirit to work in their hearts and help them move closer to you, Lord. Give us that one conversation this week. Help us to have our eyes open to see that one person where we could just ask, tell me about the higher power that you believe in. 
Help us to be good listeners. And then if we get the chance, Lord, help us to tell our story of our spiritual journey and what it's meant for us to discover you along the way. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.